This is John Halsman, and welcome to The Culture, the section of our newsletter which looks at what's going on in the world in a bigger cultural sense as we move from our newsletter becoming just a newsletter about foreign policy into a newspaper, a local newspaper for the rest of the world. And thank you to those of you who made our first Hemingway culture section such a hit. This has encouraged me to keep on going. And today we're going to look at the Beatles' magical middle years. Nobody put it better than Paul McCartney, who said, no one expects you to hit your peak at 23, so why should we? And that's indeed what happened to the Beatles after having achieved fame and fortune at a ridiculously early age. They looked around and said, what's next? And what's next was a golden period from December 1965 to May 1967, where the, when they made three albums that are arguably the best three pop music albums ever made. Rubber Soul in 65, Revolver in 66, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in 1967, which made pop music into an art form. Before we get into the how the individual albums work together, it's important to take a structural look at why the Beatles did so well. Why was this their magical period? Well, first, Brian Epstein, their incredibly underrated manager, took care of all their needs and wants so they could concentrate on the music. Secondly, they had structural stability. And, and those of you who've read To Dare More Boldly know I had the best paying gig in the world. Princeton University Press paid me to actually write about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. What a gig that was. And I discovered that beneath the Beatles' stunning success lay political stability. What we would call in foreign policy, Waltzian systemic analysis, how stable a system is, works for errors of time like the Cold War, just as it does for pop groups like the Beatles. And we see during this period of time, Lennon McCartney, John Lennon and Paul McCartney doing most of the writing, having most of the pressure put on them, but also having most of the power in the group. So the group was stable. George was still primarily the quiet Beatle, who, although growing in terms of his knowledge of Eastern mysticism and songwriting, was merely up and coming at the time, and Ringo was Ringo. As my children torture me by saying Ringo's the best Beatle, I reply, even Ringo doesn't think he's the best Beatle. But Ringo was the invaluable glue that kept the group together and was no threat to anybody. Lennon McCartney were the power of the land and doing all the work. So this was a very, very stable system run by them and by Brian Epstein, letting them concentrate on the work at hand. And this can't be underrated. This, in fact, this Indian summer of creativity was to come to an end after Sgt. Pepper's, where things got a lot more dicey. But during this period, the Beatles were at their apogee. Rubber Soul, which came out in December 1965, was their sixth studio album and is in many ways John Lennon's masterpiece. This was really the highlight of Lennon's dominance of both Lennon-McCartney and the Beatles itself. Uh, it's the first time that the band made a record free of touring commitments or PR. They actually had time to sit in the studio and work rather than just getting out mass-produced records and then going and touring and making money. The album itself became another instrument for them with the able help of George Martin, many ways the fifth Beatle, their father figure, who was their record producer and kept things together. And Rubber Soul is really the artistic response to Dylan and the Birds. The Beatles, during their 1965 tour, had met these folk rock giants and talked to them. The Birds are an incredibly underrated band, for those of you who don't follow them. Give them a listen. 
Turn, Turn, Turn and Mr. Tambourine Man are fantastic albums, but either even later albums are good. Sweetheart of the Rodeo, Yesterday and Today are great albums. But Dylan, who became good friends with the Beatles and, in fact, a lifelong friend of George Harrison, said to John Lennon, the hyper-competitive Beatle, Look, I love your melodies. I can't compete there. But the words, man, the words are what matter, and you're just not there. Well, hearing this, Lennon decided not only to make Rubber Soul, which, although eclectic, is primarily a folk rock album, he also made the words matter. And never did his words matter more. And so you get the pop cultural accessibility of the Beatles with words and poetry similar to Bob Dylan, which is why Rubber Soul is a step change up. As Ringo put it, this is the disruptive record. This is the one who made the Beatles into not just pop artists, but artists. Drop the word pop, and they are trying to make art out of popular culture. And that's what Rubber Soul does. Uh, again, they demanded only that they would do only the lyrics would come from them. Lennon McCartney originals. Um, in line with Dylan's thinking, they introduced new instruments to people's thinking, like George Harrison playing the sitar, never heard before this wonderful Indian instrument, a jangly sounding guitar similar to Roger McGuinn's Rickenbacker for the birds. You have the sitar on songs like Norwegian Wood, and then you have the focus not on singles, which is what it had been under Elvis or the Everly Brothers, but on the album as a whole. Evaluate the album as artwork as a whole, and all this characterizes Rubber Soul and sets it apart. They met Dylan on their own terms here um, and beat him by not only having wonderful words, but having the melodies that the Beatles were peerless at. And in fact, the three-part singing harmonies of Lennon, McCartney, and George Harrison resemble nothing so much as the birds. So again, Dylan's type lyrics and birds type melodies make Rubber Soul really something amazing with the studio itself being an instrument and three songs really stand out. All of them are John Lennon songs. Again, this is the apogee of John's creative dominance of the band. You have Norwegian Wood, um, which going from the old yeah, yeah, yeah love songs, instead is a song about John having an affair with a very odd woman um, who spurns his advances. He falls asleep in the bathtub and in the morning because things didn't work out, decides to burn her house down. You could see that this pitching, this wouldn't work very well nowadays with the ultra-safe record companies. But Lennon is acknowledging the complexity of human relationships, making a play on the Beatles' love songs and pointing out that human relationships are infinitely more complicated. New and different lyrics, new and different instrument with Harrison playing the sitar, and this is something special. John also went on with Nowhere Man, a song where at the height of their fame he's writing about being dissatisfied, not seeing himself as ultimately successful as a human being, even though he's one of the most famous people on the planet. And the difference between the Leninist, beatle sound of it and Nowhere Man's despairing lyrics point to John's inner complexity. And then lastly, In My Life, out of, out of the Rubber Soul album. Uh, I'm not thrilled with the, with, with the musicality of it, but the lyrics are among Lennon's greatest that he's not just writing about love songs, he's comparing where his life has been, where it is, and summing up who and what are the greatest things that he loves in the world and why. It is an elemental song about elemental things, and it really does characterize all of Rubber's soul in my life, this idea that we're going to swing for the fences and shoot for the stars and write about things that really matter. Proceeding right on from Rubber Soul is perhaps the greatest album ever made. Revolver, in my opinion, it is, which came out 
in August 1966. Uh, and this is the album where you have more, even more eclecticism than Rubber Soul, which is primarily a folk rock album with some other interesting things thrown in. Here you have the Beatles turning from pot. As John Lennon said, uh, Rubber Soul was the pot album and Revolver was the LSD album. You have them looking at the futility of bourgeois consciousness and instead saying, what are other ways we can tell the truth? And so they look. Is it the avant-garde? Is it intellectualism? Is it Eastern mysticism? Is it LSD truth-telling? Is it getting beyond the obvious to get to the profound? Again, nobody would greenlight a record about this nowadays, but they are really looking at important things through the guise of pop music. It's fusing together high culture and low culture. And better still, the seventh studio album is an album looking at the Beatles as a whole. This is where Lennon and McCartney are the most finely balanced, where Paul truly becomes the songwriting equal of John. And Paul takes more and more of a lead in doing this as they look at all these eclectic events and yet things are held together through this basic notion. So funnily enough, and I was looking at, at, at the research on this before, the, the singles that went along with the release of the album, and at the time singles weren't part of an album, which is criminal in many ways, or the albums would be even greater than they are. But the single that came out at the time was McCartney's Paperback Writer, which was a sly look at trying to become successful. McCartney early on had done the PR for the Beatles when they couldn't afford anybody to do that, and looking at how he was willing to do almost anything to succeed. That's the A side. And the B side, and there was a comment on YouTube, which I loved, when someone said, these guys aren't even human. Rain would be the greatest hit of greatest hits of any other band you can name, and the Beatles have so much going for them at this point that it's merely the best B-side ever made in singles history. Rain is a straight-spading song along the lines of David Crosby of the Birds or, or Dylan looking at people running away from the rain and Lennon's watching this and saying, I want to get involved in the rain. The sunshine and the rain are what matter. I want something real, what existentialists call leading an authentic life. Don't run away from rain. Embrace it. Again, not the average B-side for a single. And this is what's going on at the moment. Before they did Revolver, the Beatles again took an unprecedented break. Up to now, bands tried to cash in. Fame was fleeting. It wasn't going to last. And so you tried to tour as much as possible and cash in as quickly as you could. Here, the Beatles realized that they might just last. They might be onto something that has actual roots. And so they take time off from one another after the end of Rubber Soul and touring in 1965. And they come back refreshed, looking again at a concept album of the illusory nature of human existence. Couldn't make it today, but again, swinging for the stars intellectually. And this is important. So along with McCartney becoming Lennon's equal, you have George Harrison emerging as a songwriter of real importance, along with his Eastern mystic tilt, becoming more and more part of the music. And the majority of these songs are not simple love songs anymore. We're not doing yeah, yeah, yeah love songs, but they're about truth-telling, getting to what is essential. And in a way, this is the first real concept album. Tomorrow Never Knows, the last song on the piece, contains lyrics that fit for almost every other song that comes before it. Tomorrow Never Knows is almost the summing up of all the things they've done before in a conceptual whole, which again is highly interesting and highly new. And this is where they're heading. Three songs stand out. First, Eleanor Rigby. Again, this would never be greenlit nowadays. Paul McCartney 
at the height of his writing fame, maybe the best song McCartney ever wrote, and that's saying something, wrote a song about the lonely death of a spinster and how the funeral rites afterwards helped no one. So this is writing about the futility of Eleanor Rigby's bourgeois existence. She dies, Father Mackenzie does the funeral rites, and no one is saved. He puts himself in the place of an elderly English spinster and a middle-aged English cleric in his 20s as one of the most famous people in the world. Yes, that's what creativity does. It puts you in different realms. We shouldn't limit ourselves. McCartney movingly puts himself in these two positions in a way that stands the test of time, and we still think about it. He's that good at doing it. The second song that really matters here, and, and again, there are many, is Here, There, and Everywhere, McCartney's beautiful love song, but it's not just another pretty McCartney ballad. Here he's saying love is both fundamental and is of the moment. I love you here, there, and everywhere, but in the now, in the moment, that love is about eternal things, but also about the moment. This is far from the yeah, yeah, yeah love songs. And then the last piece is Lennon's Tomorrow Never Knows, where he takes the readings of Timothy Leary, Leary the LSD guru, set to the D Tibetan Book of the Dead, starts with Tibetan chants, and somehow with elephant noises involved, incredible from George Martin, somehow this fits together as the wonderful climax of this classic, where everything that came before about what matters is put together in one song, which fuses all the other songs together in a very, very satisfying way. The best album by the best group in history. Revolver truly is without peer. The last great middling period British song super sensation that the Beatles came up with is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band from May 1967, their eighth studio album, and this linked pop music and high art. And this was, by all accounts, a happy album. Uh, McCartney is now dominant. Again, the shift continues from Lennon to both of them to now McCartney, who comes up with the concept idea that they're going to strip away from being the Beatles, leave all that behind, and be this Edwardian band that plays different kinds of music. So like a snake, they shed the skin of the Beatles and can do new creative avant-garde work as this band within a band. And McCartney really is driving the project. Lennon is not as involved, but when he is involved, wow, he's fantastic. And George Harrison is there as well at the top of his game. And so you have this music within a music. In August 1966, the Beatles retired from touring. And so vehement was George Harrison that he said to Brian Epstein, I'm going to leave the band unless we stop touring. And so now it's not just a matter of the albums mattering more and more. The albums become everything. Touring doesn't matter. It's a bit like what I do for a living. There's speaking, which is like gigs, and writing, which is like albums, which last. And as you go along, more and more, the eternal, the lasting is what matters, to the point that Harrison says, I'm going to quit unless we stop touring and just devote ourselves to coming up with albums, which would have been the death knell of any other band up to that time, but the Beatles managed to make it work. And the singles that came out ahead of Sgt. Pepper's are Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, which are two takes by both Lennon and McCartney, in line with James Joyce, who made Dubliners about his childhood. These two could be called Liverpudlians. They're about the very different childhoods of Lennon and McCartney. And Lennon's is about Strawberry Field, which was an orphanage he walked by in his bleak childhood, uh, where he was under the guise of a domineering aunt, his Aunt Mimi. His beloved uncle died, and his mother, who had been an absentee figure, died in his arms. And all this bitterness and twisted childhood 
come home to Lenin from this position as a man now looking back. Again, a complicated record for a complicated man that wouldn't be made now about feelings that actually elevate this low culture form in theory, which is what pop music is, into high art. At the same time, McCartney makes Penny Lane, the sunny side of Liverpudlians, where he looks at this close-knit community in Liverpool, and despite everything, everyone laughs gently at each other in a surreal way. Again, the LSD is not far behind, but that this is a community and a happy part of his more happy-go-lucky childhood, though he had problems, too, with his mother dying, amongst other things. But these are two sides of the same coin of Liverpudlians. Very complicated music coming out of this. Um, there was no deadline for completion of Sgt. Pepper. For the first time, they could stay in the studio as long as literally they won. And boy, they did that. And a couple songs come out of this again. They take this break from each other and then come back hard. It's really their, their answer to Pet Sounds, Brian Wilson's masterpiece, which is his answer to Revolver. The Beach Boys and Brian Wilson and the Beatles are competing to see who can be the new Aaron Copeland, the great songwriter of their era. And that's what they're going for. Only Ringo is bored at this period. He said during Sgt. Pepper's he learned to play chess because he's not needed as, in, as much. The studio itself is another instrument. George Martin is another instrument. And Ringo comes in and out, but is only there as part of this larger orchestra for Lennon and McCartney. And you see this again, the first song, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, McCartney somehow takes an oompa band, sheds the Beatles' skin, and makes it trendy and avant-garde somehow, and it works. He also then, John, in one of his few contributions, but wow, comes up with Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, perhaps the greatest psychedelic song ever made. He swears up and down it was a song about a picture that Julian drew of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but LSD are the initials. And I think we can say this is probably the greatest psychedelic song ever written, where Lennon uses this expanded consciousness to look at the world afresh. And then, having woven together this kind of surreal imagery, circus, carnivalesque imagery, avant-garde imagery, the Beatles end with maybe the ultimate coda of the ultimate album, which is A Day in the Life. Lennon and McCartney couldn't finish a song each, and instead they fused them together with a song that is observational about the fleeting nature of being alive in bourgeois England in 1967, and that we have to look for the things beneath it that matter, that last, that endure. It's a fitting way to enter the summer of love of which Sgt. Pepper became the banner of this, this seminal period of time. And so with these three songs, as we've seen, the Beatles remake pop music as an art form, but it's the Indian summer for them. The Beatles are unique in never having really made a bad album or even an okay album, but really this is the apogee of their work and afterwards things quickly fall apart. What happened? Well, first of all, Brian Epstein died of an overdose when the Beatles went off to see the Maharishi in India, and boy did they miss him. This underrated manager who took care of all their needs, loved the band personally and their music, um, as he said later, he just wanted to be a screaming fan at events, but it took care of them so they could concentrate only on the music. With him gone, they're going to be crooks like Alan Klein trying to take their money and control over the Beatles, lawyers on all sides fighting for control. And when the business enters, this is the beginning of the end without Brian Epstein there to shelter them. 
So that's the first thing that goes wrong. The second thing that goes wrong as this goes along is, again, we've seen the relative balance of power changing and being manageable from John dominating the band with rubber soul to a beautiful equilibrium in revolver to Paul dominating the band, but John still contributing in Sgt. Pepper. After this, John loses more and more interest in the Beatles. Uh, he gets interested in Yoko Ono and heroin. And in the second case, certainly, this is a terrible instance where he loses his creative drive. And the Beatles become more and more Paul's band. He has to dragoon them into doing work, which they resent, and he resents being forced into the position of having to dragoon them. And this is the beginning of the end. This equilibrium, this political equilibrium, breaks down over John's lack of interest. It also breaks down because George Harrison gets better and better as a songwriter and starts producing things like Here Comes the Sun and Something, only to be told by Lennon McCartney, sorry, it's very pretty, but we're Lennon McCartney. We're the most famous songwriters of our era. You'll be lucky to get this on the album and not get a B-side. And the resentment that this built up in Harrison made him angrier and angrier until the thought of leaving began to be very, very appealing, as the Beatles didn't appreciate that he was no longer the quiet Beatle, but had things to say of his own, spurred by his fascination with Eastern mysticism and instrumentalization. Harrison had a distinct and wonderful and unique voice that found flower late in the Beatles with Abbey Road, but at that point, the damage is done. The Waltzian systemic analysis breaks down, and this is an era and a band that's not long for this world, given this going on. But let's celebrate the Beatles, because with this magical middle period, they did work creatively that stands the test of time and elevated pop music into an art form. They've never been surpassed in all the years since. And after you listen to this, I urge you to, in a row, listen to Rubber Soul Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and tell me if they aren't, together, the greatest bit of pop music ever made. Enjoy it as I have and as I've had talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to This the Culture in our little local newspaper to the world, John's newsletter. For those of you who haven't subscribed, please do so. So many of you had, and we're delighted that you have, Please keep going. We've made a decision at the firm to make this into a full-style newspaper, four or five days of content a week, including a culture section. We looked at Ernest Hemingway. Now we're looking at the Beatles, and we'll keep going from here. But to do this, I need you to subscribe. And those of you who have subscribed, I need you to give. We're asking only $70 a year or $7 a month, half the coffee I'm now drinking. If you think this is worth it to have unique, creative interesting content on the things that move your life from foreign policy to the role of government and society to the elites we live in to COVID to jail writers column for us on the society to my work for us on the culture. We're going to have two new writers in the section and are becoming a fully fledged newspaper. To do this, I'm asking for $70 a year. That's it, $7 a month, and we'll keep it going. In the words of Paul McCartney, let it be. Thanks very much.